Hi, this is Rachel on Recover. We've got a special guest today, Sarah, Sarah Moon. She's a pastor of four churches right now. Um, she's going to tell us a little bit about herself, and then she's uh, going to answer some questions about spiritual abuse. Hi, like uh, Rachel said, I am a pastor of four churches in kind of the rural Ohio area. Uh, I am a recent seminary graduate. And so this, these are my first four churches that I've ever had, so I'm still learning, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I married my spouse's name, Abraham, so we're Sarah and Abraham, which is a really good, strong biblical couple name, I guess. And we are the parents of three cats named Pickle, Merrill, and Maji. So that's yes. me. That's my, that's my elevator speech. Okay. Um, here's some questions. Um, what has been your experience working with spiritually abuse, spiritual abuse in the church? Well, I grew up in the uh, independent fundamental Baptist church, which is a very strict, uh, it's not really a denomination, it's more of, it's like a loose affiliation of Baptist churches, and they are very strict and very conservative, and a lot of harmful messaging, I would say, came out of that. I don't think anyone in the church would like come right out and say, yeah, abuse is good. We like abuse. But the theology that they taught and the lack of accountability that was present in the church structure was kind of enabled abuse, I would say. So could you elaborate? Yeah, so that elaborate. Oh, go ahead. Can you elaborate? Uh, well, for instance, uh, the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church is not a denomination, like I said, and each church kind of has, it, like, each pastor of each church kind of is the boss, and if the pastor is doing something wrong, there's no one above him that you can go to. If a pastor is abusive, there's not much you can do about it except for go to the, the law if it's uh, a criminal level of abuse, but... Yeah, there's not really much accountability. Uh, yeah, very uh, strict gender roles also in the IFB. Uh, like women have to submit to men and no questioning it. Women can't speak in the church. And so I think those strict gender roles definitely enable some abuse. Um, how do you feel like the church uh, cultivates victim blaming? Yeah. Uh, well, actually, when I was an undergraduate, I left the IFB and I majored in women's studies. And I really started studying like feminist theology and victim-centered theology. And then I actually did my thesis on rape myths and victim blaming and Christian dating guides. So like books that dating and marriage guides that Christians would read. And, uh, one thing that I found really interesting when I was doing this research was there are there's an article by Peter Glick and Susan Fisk that is about the concept of ambivalent sexism. Ambivalent sexism says that there's two different kinds of sexism. So there's benevolent sexism, which sees women as mothers, women as nurturing, women as kind of needing to be protected. So it's like not anti-woman, it kind of puts women on a pedestal, but it limits the roles that women can uh, hold. And on the other hand, there's hostile sexism, which like sees women as, you know, sluts and 
terrible people and they you know that's the more violent more harmful form of sexism and these two kinds of sexism are not totally separate so you're not either a benevolent sexist or a hostile sexist these two things work together so benevolent sexism kind of justifies violence because women who step outside of those roles of protection those motherly nurturing roles then bring it upon themselves. And uh, I see how those kind of, this concept of ambivalent sexism really played out in the IFB because it had very strict gender roles. There are only certain things a woman was supposed to do. And if you step outside of that role, then you're no longer the good woman who needs to be protected. You're now the bad woman who either needs to be punished or, you know, brings it on herself because she stepped outside of the protection of men. So okay, that's something that I think was interesting. How do you think the church could do better with helping with sexual abuse victims? Let's see. Um, I think first of all, just rethinking those gender roles is a really important first step. Uh, the other thing I think is really important is, have a deeper and more uh, robust sexual ethic. I think a lot of churches, their sexual ethics are there's good sex and that's marital sex and there's bad sex and that's premarital sex. And that's as far as it goes. There's no nuances there. And, and that really allows for, I think a lot of sexual abuse to take place. Another thing I talked about in my thesis was there's this idea in a lot of Christian dating books that, only bad girls say yes. So if a if a girl has a teenage girl or a young woman has premarital sex, she's bad and it doesn't matter what the nuances were or if it's uh, consensual or not. And on the other hand, only bad wives say no. And so on the other hand, once you're married, you can't say no to sex. And so then that allows for a lot of domestic and marital abuse and allows that to be justified. So I think rethinking our gender roles, rethinking our sexual ethics, and then just on a more practical level as a pastor, and right now I'm a pastor in the United Methodist Church, so I'm no longer in the IFB, and I like the Methodist Church because it has that structure and that hierarchy. So we have policies that we have to implement as pastors, and if I don't implement those policies, I'm going to get fired from my job. So I have that accountability, and so we call ours safe sanctuaries, uh, and they lay out things like if you work with kids, you have to have a background check, and people can't be alone with children in the church, and and this allows, and here's who you report to if you hear about sexual abuse or any kind of abuse taking place, and so it's all laid out, and it's not like this vague uh, it's not vague and everyone knows what to do when abuse takes place. And so I think that's really important. And it's something that I like about my denomination. You know, we don't always do everything perfectly and not everyone follows those policies, unfortunately, and you still have cases of abuse. But there are those guards that I think really protect, especially children. Um, how do you think the church could do better with helping with domestic violence? Yeah, I think, uh, again, those gender roles and those sexual ethics 
are really important for us to rethink. Uh, I also think uh, leaders should research how abuse works. Cause I think a lot of us, we assume we already know what abuse looks like. It, it looks like a man being mean and hitting and punching and, and really the fact is that a lot of abusers are very manipulative and they manipulate the people around their victims to get them on their side. And that especially they do this to leaders because we have power. And uh, if we if they get us on their side, they have our power and can use our power to continue to abuse. So I think leaders should really know what abuse looks like. Uh, I recommend the book. Why does he do that by Lundy? Bancroft, which is a really good book about what the nuances of abuse looks like and the the ways that people will, abusers will manipulate the people around their victims. And it was really enlightening for me. It's a little bit of an older book. And I think there's some language in there that I might, there's some like heterosex, I think there's a heteronormative assumptions in this book, but I think overall, it's a really good book to read for any leader who wants to understand abuse better. I have a question that's going to go off the books here. Um, How do you think uh, scripture has been misused to abuse women or minorities or in that manner? Right. Uh, I think the one I see the most is uh, child abuse from scripture. So this idea of uh, spare the rod, spoil a child, which is not exactly in scripture, but there's similar verses to that. And people use that to justify child abuse. And some people, even in the IFB, also use that to justify abusing their wives. And so I think that's one way. Then all the chapters, all the verses about divorce, I think, are often used to get women to stay in abusive relationships, even when they really need to leave. And this idea of, like, uh, divorce being the worst thing you can do versus, you know, abusing women being the worst thing you can do. So, yeah, that's my thought. Okay. Um, What are things that trigger you working in the church today? Um, Well, I've done a lot of, I think I've done a lot of healing, so... I think I used to be very triggered in church and now my triggers, I think are a little bit more subtle. I think uh, what triggers me is people criticizing my leadership or people that don't like me or people, uh, you know, when I make a small mistake, I'm kind of a perfectionist because I grew up with a verbally abusive father. And so whenever I get criticism, I'm like, Oh no, it's the end of the world. I'm a terrible person, which is not true and not a healthy position for leaders to take. And so that's something I continue to work on. And then uh, I think the other thing that maybe triggers me is these very oversimplified sexual ethics that even, I think even more progressive churches tend to have where you talk about premarital sex is bad and marital sex is good. And that's all you talk about. that, That just, I don't know if it triggers me, but it bothers me. And I, We'll get on my soapbox whenever I hear it. So, Yeah. No, I get that. Mm-hmm. Oh. What are things that used to trigger you inside the church? I think there was a time when I 
didn't go to church at all because of just just being in a church building I found triggering. And so I kind of stopped going to church for a few years. I ended up going back to a universalist church, which really helped me because it was a church and yet it wasn't this explicit Christian context and went to a universalist church for a while and ended up through a long story, ended up in the UMC, but it took a long time to get there because just being in a church for a while, I found triggering. Um, can you elaborate on anything specific? Um, I don't know. Like uh, some of the songs you would sing would be, I think there's some songs that Baptists sing, which I actually kind of like now, but this is on the other side of a lot of healing I've done that talk about, uh, you know, nothing but the blood of Jesus or just this like violent sounding, which, you know, if it's in the context of good theology, I don't think it's actually promoting violence, but in the context of a church that does promote violence to hear this theology of atonement about God killing his son and, and blood and all the suffering and that I found really triggering. How has God helped you heal with dealing with fundamentalism and legalism inside the church? Uh, I think like we tend to project our own experiences onto God and a lot of people kind of see God. I think the most common is they see God through the lens of their parents, especially fathers or a preacher. So growing up with an abusive father and growing up in a, I would say an abusive church, uh, it was kind of hard to have a relationship with God. And I think the way that God helped was, you know, God doesn't care if you're angry at him or her. God doesn't, uh, God can handle our anger and God can handle our grief and God can handle our pain in a way that I think most humans can't. And just God being there and being this stable force of grace in my life that I could go to with any emotion and with any feeling. It took a, a long time to get there, but I think God is patient and God was with me on that journey. So, um, what is one thing that you pray for or want for your churches? Um, I want my churches. I'm in the right now. I'm in the United Methodist Church, and if you know anything about the United Methodist Church, if you've heard about it on the news, we are currently in a huge fight about whether or not we're going to become LGBT affirming, and I think. When it comes to abuse, I mean, just I want us to become LGBT affirming just because that's the right thing to do. But also when it comes to abuse, we cannot fully address abuse unless we let go of these traditional gender roles, which are the driving force behind this anti-LGBT movement in the church. This idea that there's a place for men and a place for women and you don't cross those lines. And I think we can give lip service to the idea of being against abuse. We can have these policies and that's really important. But I think the next step that we need to do is really get rid of gender roles altogether and, or not necessarily get rid of gender roles, but realize that they are uh, socially constructed and be a little bit more flexible with those gender roles so that 
so that we aren't uh, perpetuating these rape myths and these uh, victim-blaming attitudes. And I think in order for us to take that next step, we have to become LGBT-affirming. So that's what I pray for, for my church. Um, What advice would you give ministers today that are dealing with spiritual abuse personally or with their congregation? Yeah, I think my first thing I would say is do your research. Uh, Have maybe do some research, see if there are domestic violence shelters in your area, know their phone numbers, if if they ever put on training events, see if you can go to those and read these book and read the books I told you. Uh, Lundy Bancroft has a lot of good books about this topic and just kind of know what's going on. I would also say have a support group and because it can be hard to address uh, abuse in your church if you are a leader. Uh, thankfully, I've only had to do it one time in my career so far. Uh, where I had to call CPS because of an abuse case that was going on. And it's really hard to do. It It is tough and it is triggering. And having a support group of people that you can talk to can be really, really helpful. Also, really, I would suggest therapy for anyone, even if you don't think you need it, because I think all leaders struggle with this need to be liked and if you are addressing abuse in your church, if you are rocking the boat in that area, you're not always going to be liked. If you call CPS on someone, they probably won't like you anymore. And so having that uh, support and learning to get over that uh, need to be liked will make you a better leader and it will help you to keep people safe. Uh, I would say my other, my last advice is... Well, another thing I had is have policies. So if you're in a denomination like the United Methodist Church, they require policies. But make sure you have those policies in place of who gets to work with children, what the boundaries are, what the limits are, how are you going to keep kids safe. And make sure everyone in your church that works with people knows those policies. And also, one thing I think a lot of us don't think about, make sure every group that meets in your church building knows those policies and signs them. Uh, The Methodist Church and a lot of other churches are having some issues with this because the Boy Scouts of America are going bankrupt and a lot of people are bringing up abuse cases, some of which happened in the Boy Scouts, but the Boy Scouts met in specific church buildings. And because there were no policies decades ago in these abuse cases are coming up from past decades, there were no policies back then. And so I think it's important to not just have, you know, Sunday school and nursery workers sign this, but if you have Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts who meet at your church building, make sure they have these policies as well and review them often. Okay. Um, anything else you would like to add? Um, let's see. I think my other thing would be uh, for leaders just – Be secure enough in your own faith that you can listen to other people's stories of spiritual abuse without getting defensive. And I think that can be a hard thing to do when someone is saying, this aspect of the faith hurt me and it triggers me and I don't want to be in church and I don't want to hear it. It can be easy to try to argue or try to convince them otherwise, but I would suggest be secure in your own faith and your own life that you can hear these stories and just hear people out because that's really what people need, not 
arguments, but someone to listen. So, yeah. Do you have any other questions for me? Um, I guess that's really it. Like, I can't think of anything else. So, um, thanks for coming on my show, Sarah. Thanks for having me. And um, I think that's it, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rachel on Recovery. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or you, and you can watch us on almost every platform, uh, whether that's Spotify, Apple, or Google. Um, thanks for listening, and I will see you next Thursday.